uh, Parsha Shalach, uh, oftentimes the Parsha will line up with things that are going on in our current events. And that's always really intriguing to me. Uh, and you might say, well, how does this line up? We'll get to that. But it's always intriguing to me how, how the, the, the Torah portions, which the Torah, of course, being written, uh, you know, a very, very long time ago, and then the portions being done, um, you know, a long time ago as well. It's always interesting how these ancient uh, writings, these, these divisions of antiquity can still speak to where we are today and, and how, we, how we are handling things today. And so there is a lot in this Parsha. So uh, I encourage you to do this whenever you, um, whenever you, uh, the new week when a new Parsha comes up, uh, just go to, go to Google and search, you know, Torah portion, whatever, uh, whatever Torah portion we're in, Shalak, and you'll find as the results a wiki page, a Wikipedia page. Now, Wikipedia is not a great place to do all your research, but it is a great place to get a snapshot of, for instance, for the Torah portion. So um, it gives you kind of an outline of what's going on, tells you some interesting things about it. And so this, uh, this week's Parsha Shalak, Shalak means send, right? So it comes from the first few words, uh, it means to sin. And do you have this word Shalak? We also have another word in the Tanakh, uh, Shaliach. So let me, follow me over here. So we have a couple different variations or derivations of this word. Derivations, that's a good, that's a good one. Um, so we have uh, Shalach, sometimes also Shalach Lecha, you'll see it as well. Um, and then we also have something called Shaliach, right? Shaliach is a sent one. So this is to send, a verb. A shaliach is the noun. It's a sent one. It's a messenger. Um, what's interesting in the, the text is uh, you'll have the English referencing messengers. And sometimes that is translated from the word uh, shaliach as a messenger. And sometimes it is translated from the same word for angel which is Malach, Malach. Yeah, I want to make sure, because Malach, Melach, there's all this. So this is the word for angel is Malach. And sometimes, depending on the translator and the translation and the context and all that, you may actually have the word Shaliach, which just means a person was sent as a messenger. Or it may say messenger, and really the word is Malach, which is the word for an angelic messenger. So just an interesting thing. When you're reading through that, when you're reading through text and you see messenger or some, something like that, go back even to Strong's uh, is good just to see what word it is. And sometimes it's interesting. So, uh, Shalak Sind or Shalak Lecha Sind for Yourself um, is the 37th weekly uh, portion. And uh, it is the fourth in the book of Numbers. Uh, of course, the name comes from the, the, what we said, verse 2, Shaliach. Uh, and it's, uh, there's a lot in here, right? So you have the commandment to send the spies or the, the sending of the spies. Um, you have Moshe praying for Joshua, for Yehoshua. Then you have the spies report and, uh, and Kalev, which we're going to talk about Kalev a little bit. And then you have the nation just absolutely melting down in hysteria. Um, and then we have we have this really cool interplay between Hashem and Moshe. And this is one of the conversations and parts of Scripture that I absolutely love um, whenever it's like, they're your children. No, they're your children. No, they're your children. No, they're your children. Because we've all had those conversations if you have kids. And if you are a kid in here, those conversations have been had about you uh, at some point, right? And so it's this really human interaction between Hashem and Moshe as they're trying to figure out what to do with this nation uh, that is just in complete disarray. And so God forgives them, right? He forgives them, and yet there's still a consequence to the forgiveness. Uh, the Going into the land is going to be put off by 40 years, and they're going to wander in the, the desert, in the wilderness. And so God uh, 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 spells that out. And in chapter 15, we go through uh, different uh, offerings and uh, atonements for idol, idolatry and all these different kind of things. Then we have... Uh, uh, five, six, the five, six pick up sticks guy, right? The, the guy that desecrates the Sabbath by picking up sticks um, and that we're not going to get into that today. And then we have the commandment for tzitzit. Um, and so there is a lot in this portion, a whole lot in this portion. But we're going to start out and I want to end up talking about a verse, a couple of verses that I've talked out about before. Um, 
And as I was studying this this week, I just, I, I studied every part of it and the different things and different opinions and all that. And I kept coming back to these verses. Same verses I have loved since I was probably 16 or 17. Um, so you've heard some of this before, but just uh, bear with me and, and be patient. All right, so let's start out in the first verse of chapter 13 uh, of, of uh, Bamibar, Numbers. And it begins and says, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, send forth men, if you please, or for yourself. That's the lecha part. And send them out to spy the land of Canaan that I give to the children of Israel. One man from his father's tribe shall you send, everyone a leader among them. So real quick, just let's, let's make this point and understand who is being sent. And right. that's good, but that... Um, since Abraham. So the promise of the land is not a new thing. The promise of the land is something that was in the ethos, is something that God had promised even before there were children in Egypt to be rescued, right? Even before there was a, 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 a slave nation of Israel in Egypt, this promise was already a thing, which which kind of makes you look at the, the children of Israel and go like, well, how dare they doubt such an old promise, right? But as, as normally, it's our, it's our reaction sometimes to judge the nation of Israel for the ways that they act. And we're so thick sometimes that we don't ever go like, no, that's me. That's, as Kyle and I talked about the parables and those things, the thing Yeshua is always doing in the Gospels is the parables that he tells, they're about us. We should always see ourselves. They're not a lesson about somebody. You know, really good church people, they'll sit and listen to a good sermon and go, boy, I sure wish so-and-so was here. They really need to hear this. No, you're there and it's for you. You need to hear it. And we do the same thing with Scripture, and Yeshua is, is doing this thing with the parables where he's putting you in the place and asking you to confront yourself. This is exactly what Scripture has done all along. He not, he's not inventing a new way of teaching. He's doing the same thing that Scripture has done. Some things in Scripture are wonderful, and we should do them. There are other things in Scripture that I think the Bible is going, this is how n- completely not to be. And we have to develop the wisdom to know the difference. And so when we look at Israel, we shouldn't see Israel that's being taught a lesson. We should see us. And go like, oh, yeah, I would probably be in that same, in that same camp. I would probably be doing the same thing. Instead of going, I would never like they are. No, you probably would. Just admit it and let's learn, our, learn about ourselves and let the word of God teach us some wisdom. So, we've, again, things that we've talked about before, you got the whole world in his hands, right? He's got the whole wide world in his hands, right? And you got all the nations of the earth. This is to scale. Um, and you've got, uh, you've got over here, you've got Europe, right, with its thing or whatever. And then, and, and then it is a duck. And then you've you got it. Shut up. And then you've got Israel, thereabouts, right? Right? Whatever. Leave me alone. Um, so we talk about, we talk about these things in concentric circles, right? Radio Kedusha, right? So we have, we have Jerusalem in the center and then we have the land of Israel being a holy place, right? We have levels of holiness in Israel and then we have all the nations of the world and I'm going to erase this so you're not distracted by my stupid drawing. You're welcome because y'all not going to hear anything else I have to say. He's going to be looking at the duck with a necktie. So the, this idea that the... The reason why the promise of the land and the the whole spy debacle is so important is because they weren't just going in to get a piece of dirt. They're not just going in to get a patch of, you know, and and I mean, like, you go to Israel. My dad, so funny, he always, we'd watch the news and we'd talk about, like, all the wars in the Middle East. You know, they've been fighting over there for eternity, it seems like. And my dad's statement, he would always watch that and he he always says, you know, he'd kind of laugh and go like, out of all the places on the earth, why is there so much fighting over that? Because it's just Israel. They tell you when you go to Israel, when you all go to Israel, when we all go to Israel together, um, we'll be talking about that in the next couple of weeks too. Um, when, when we all go to Israel together, one of the first things they'll tell you is, uh, if you can, take home all the rocks that you want. 
because Israel literally grows rocks. Yeah, Brother Ron has some. Yeah, they go through the field and they pick all of the rocks and they get all of it free of rocks and then it, it, the ground freezes and it gets hard, you know, and then it thaws in the spring and there's more rocks come out. They just grow rocks. You stand in, if, if we were not a people that had the Bible as a, an underpinning and the experience of the scriptures, the stories of the scriptures as an underpinning, many of us would stand in the land of Israel and go like, I don't get it. Because <laughs> it's, it's not overly beautiful. I mean, it's, it's literally a sandbox, right? That whole region. And so we can, be, we can be tricked into thinking or we can be low into thinking that, well, they kind of had a right to complain. But we have to understand that what, what they are being given is not just a piece of land. What they are being given is a holy space. They are being given a holy space that eventually God's plan is for all of creation to revolve around. This is that radial Kedusha we talk about all the time. Jerusalem being its epicenter, right? The Temple Mount being the center of that. And so they're not just being given uh, land. They're being given holy land. And this speaks to our understanding of holiness that, that you know, let's just be really, really silly about it and, and put it in a different way. If God gives you something or if you get something by your own efforts, you appreciate it, you take care of it, hopefully, and all. But if you know something comes by way of God's divine intervention, that thing means something a little more. It means something a little different, whether it be a, a physical possession, whether it be health, whether it be uh, you know, financial prosperity, whatever it is, those things that come by the way of the hand of God are more special because they have a holiness attached to them. They have a, a, uh, uh, something that's bigger that it, that's attached to them. So who... Who are they sending to spy out this land? They are specifically told that they are to send the leaders of the tribes. So, I don't know about you, but when I read scripture and I read things like this, I have to create a picture of what's going on. That's the only way I can understand it. My pictures are never accurate. Hopefully, they're getting more accurate the, the older I get. But I create a picture of what, and in my, in my, my, my mind, it was always Joshua and Caleb. I knew, who the, I knew who they were, or thought I knew who they were. And then it was just like this, 10 other people. And in my picture, you have Joshua and Caleb, and then you have these, these other people, and their faces are kind of blurred out. Like, they're not really important. Like, who cares? They're just 10 people, 10 guys, random guys that just decided to pack along, right? Nobody else wanted the job, so you got these 10 rabble-rousers. And, in, and honestly, when we read the text, it tells us exactly who they are. They are, this says leaders, I think the stone Chumash says princes. They are the princes of the tribes. They are the, the top guys, the top leaders of the tribes of Israel. So they're not just some nobodies, right? They're not just some like, uh, let's grab Bob there. He's not doing anything. They're, they're not just some nobodies that have no skill and no, nothing to lose, no clout, no whatever. They are the princes, which helps us to understand that when they come back, what they say carries weight. What they say is very is, is felt by the community because of who they are. Not just because it was a bad report, but because of who it was. The, you know, this is, it's not funny, but it's funny. Um, people, you know, in the charismatic, spirit-filled, you know, movement, they, you go to the doctor and you get a report that is less than what you would like. And what's the first thing people say? Whose report will you believe? Right? That's right. Here, here's the thing about that. If, if I already picked on y'all, so I'm going to pick on y'all some more. If, if Peter comes up to me one day and we're talking, you know, we're having a conversation and we're talking, whatever. And he goes, you know what? It sounds like, it sounds like you might have X, Y, Z. I go like, okay. Because Peter's not a doctor. He's an intelligent guy. Okay, in that instance, you could say, well, whose report are you going to believe, like Peter or God's, right? But when it's a doctor who has spent his life diagnosed, the doctor's not giving you cancer. He's just saying, I see it there. Whose report are you going to believe? Uh, well, the expert. He's just saying it's there. Not that, you understand, I'm not trying to offend anybody. I'm trying to say like, the reason why the nation of Israel freaked out is because of who was giving the report, right? 
that we, so often we, just, we minimize people's standings in the biblical text, and then we minimize them in our own lives. Those same people that go, well, whose report are you going to believe? You know what? They're going to go back to the doctor, and they're going to do whatever treatment the doctor suggests. So in one hand, it's like we, we minimize the importance of the, doc, the physician that's diagnosing us, but in the other hand, we cling to him with our very lives. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway, the, the idea that the people get so outraged and so worked up is because of who gives the report. They are the princes. They are the princes of the tribes, the people that have led them. They were, they were likely, history is not real, surely real, real sure, but the, 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 the text seems to indicate that these princes were taken from the taskmasters in Egypt. So the Egyptians allowed for a Hebrew to be a taskmaster over their fellows, and those are the men that actually became the princes over the tribes. And so these people have known these men for years. They have a history with them. And then you have these two young whippersnappers, Joshua and Caleb, that are the dissenting opinion, right? So this, this is about who is sent, and I think it's important to put that in context and to understand that. So um, verse 3, Moshe sent them forth from the wilderness of Paran and Hashem's command. They were all distinguished men. The heads of the children were they. Um, and then their names. These are their names from the tribe of Reuben. Uh, Shemua, son of Zakur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, son of Huri, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, son of Yephuneh. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Caleb, but do some research on Caleb. We've talked about him in the past. Caleb's interesting um, because other places in the Torah, it tells us that Caleb was, uh, somebody help me get this right, Kenazite or Kenite. There's two different tribes with similar names. I, I can't even remember which one it is, which means that he's not an Israelite. He's an ite of a different origin, which means that Caleb's people were some that were occupying the land that God had given to Israel. So kind of think this, think this through and around. You have Caleb as one of the 12 spies. Caleb is not an Israelite. He is a, whatever it is, Kenite, I think it is, Kenizzite, from the land. So all kind of interesting questions arise from here. That probably is covered in Midrash or somewhere else. So does Caleb know people in the land that they're going to spy out? Does he have family there? Does he have a community there? Does he, like, does he have a hometown maybe or a town where his parents or grandparents are from there? It's a really interesting dynamic once you understand who Caleb is. Now, the name Caleb mean, can mean loyalty. It also can be a name for a, a canine, a dog, which we know is... The, the epitome of, of loyalty, right? So Caleb is a super interesting, uh, to me, much more interesting than Joshua. Sorry, Joshua. But Caleb is, is really super interesting. Um, so Caleb is sent on behalf of Judah. And then we have, uh, where are we? Verse 7, the tribe of Issachar, uh, Egal, son of Yosef, for the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, son of Nun, for the tribe of Benjamin, uh, Palti, son of Raphu, for the tribe of Zebulun, uh, Gadiel, son of Sadi, the tribe of Joseph, for the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, son of Susi, the tribe of Dan, Amiel, son of Gamali, the tribe of Asher, Satur, son of Michael, from the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, son of uh, Vafsi, uh, then the tribe of Gad, Geul, uh, son of Maki. These are the names of the men who Moshe sent to spy out the land. Uh, Moshe called to Hosea, uh, to Hosea, son of Nun, Joshua. Now, we ran through these names, and you all went like, yeah, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But what's important to do if you're going to really understand why this is a big deal, and if we're going to study Scripture and be good students of Scripture, what is incumbent upon us, as much as it is possible, is to go back into those genealogies that we don't like reading and find these people if we can. Find their families find and understand. Because what we, the disconnect that we have between a lot of the Torah, us and a lot of the Torah, is that for for the Jewish people, these are their people. This is like talking about old uncle so-and-so several generations ago. Old ain't so-and-so, right? Two or three generations ago, five generations ago, whatever. And hearing stories about them. The Jewish people have this connection. When it says a name, they know who it is. 
we don't. We just go, yeah, it's just names. It's just blurry faces in our, in our mind's eye. When really these are people of standing and experience and wisdom. These are leaders. And leaders are going to be a imp- really important thing as we talk about this Parsha. So verse uh, 17, Moshe sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. And he said to them, ascend here in the south and climb the mountain. See the land. How is it? And the people that dwells in it, is it weak or strong? Is it few or numerous? And how is the land which it dwells? Is it good or is it bad? And how are the cities in which it dwells? And how are they open or how are they fortified? How is the land fertile or is it lean? Are there trees in it or not? And you shall strengthen yourselves and take from the fruit of the land the days where the season of the first ripe grapes. Now, if we're reading with any kind of focus, this should raise a tumult of questions. Right, We should have a ton of questions about this, none of which we're going to answer in today. <laughs> Sorry. But if Moshe believes the promise of God about the land, why is he even allowing them to send spies anyway? Right? If he's the one that's accountable for this, and afterwards you know, he and God get in this big spat, why does he even allow it? Secondly, Moses tells them what to look for. Almost like he's, it almost sounds like he's going like, I need to know. But he, or if he believes the testimony of God and the promise of God, then why is he asking these things, right? Then, when the spies come back and they're honest, well, kind of honest, about what is there, why do they get in trouble and Moses doesn't? Because he wanted to know too. I mean, there's just all these, and the, the sages and the com- rabbinic commentary has a lot to say, and Christian commentary does as well, a lot to say, try to answer some of these questions. But it is a challenging thing. Verse 21, they ascended and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to the expanse of the approach of Hamat. They ascended in the south and arrived at Hebron, where there were uh, Ahimah, Shisai, and Talmai, the offspring of the giant. Hebron had been built seven years before Zoan of Egypt. The Hebron, we've heard about Hebron before in our Torah portion. You probably don't remember. I didn't remember until somebody brought it to my attention. Hebron is the place of a very important, important landmark in the land of Israel. I know some of you studied this Parsha, so do you know what is at Hebron? It's a place called Machpelah. Does that ring a bell? Machpelah? That's right. This is where the family of Abraham is buried in Hebron. Okay? The tomb of Machpelah. That's the, the, the place where they are buried. You can go to it today in Israel. The, this is a holy place in, in Israel. So they go there, and there are these three names that were given, these three people. It says they were the sons of the giants. What giants? What, what giants? Where did these people come from? Where else have we heard about giants? Where? The Nephilim. Okay, so let's go back to Genesis 6. Bereshit 6. And I'm going to give you a problem that I'm not going to solve. Okay? You're welcome. Six. Genesis six. Verse one. And it came to pass when man began to increase upon the face of the ground, and daughters were born to them. Then somebody read for me at verse two, what does it say? The sons of God. Right, what happened? Right? The daughters of men were beautiful, right? And what? And they took wives. Okay, so how many of your translations says the sons of God? Raise a show of hands. Okay. Who are these sons of God? Don't worry about your answer. Just tell me what you think or what you've heard. Who are these sons of God? Say it. Angels, right? Fallen angels, right? Is, any, is that pretty much what, are we all in agreement with that? Huh? Men of renown, okay, which is, we'll get there. (laughs) 
right? What is, what is Heiser's conclusion? Right, demigods, yeah, so fallen angels, demigods, yeah. So the idea that most have is that the sons of Elohim, right, um, are fallen angels, demigods, demons even, you know, some would say, or, or whatever. And that this is, and listen, some of you may, you may have studied this, this may be what you believe, again, not trying to offend you, just giving you some other ways to think about this. Um, I've had more conversations than I can count with people, and I've studied this so I understand, that 100% believe that humanity's bloodline was pure from the garden until this particular occurrence. And this is where our physical bloodline became corrupted and that the whole thing with Yeshua is that he is a pure blood and that by having a transfusion, so to speak, when we come under his blood, we're made pure again. Something along those lines. <laughs> what, what was that? <laughs> so, and, and there's a whole like thing about this. There's, a, there's large swaths of people in our circles that believe this is the thing, okay? Um, there's other ways to think about it. Let me just say, let me just say this. Um, I, I have always been really uncomfortable with the whole fallen angel demon thing. Um, I don't know why I just have. So it's forced me to look in other directions and see other things. There is a, uh, if you would believe it or not, I know some of you are going to be so surprised. Some of you probably already know this. There's a midrash that talks about this, <gasps> right? Like there's a mid- midrash that talks about every everything else, stuff you've always wanted to know and stuff you never wanted to know. And so in this um, this midrash, it says that the sons of God, B'nai Elohim, saw the daughters of men. Now this rabbi, one of these sages that we talk about all the time, I'm going to give you a name. Uh, Simeon Bar Yochai called them the sons of nobles. Okay, the sons of nobles. Further, he cursed all who called them the sons of God. Now, the word is Elohim, right, which is God or gods. But Elohim can be used in a lot of different ways. It can mean supreme Master of the universe, yud heh vav heh God, or it can mean what we think of as demigods, the gods of other nations, right? Small g gods of other nations. Or in this culture, in the ancient Near East, the son of God was one particular person in every nation. Who was that? The king. The king in every nation was called B'nai Elohim, the son of God, because it was his responsibility and duty to express godly character, wisdom, the image of God, and to conform his nation to that. He was also expected to provide safety, as God does for us, and to provide food and peace and sustenance for his people. All the things that God, it says that God does for humanity. The king was responsible for doing that. So the king is known as B'nai Elohim. King David was called the son of God. Okay, So it says that this rabbi... Simeon uh, Bar Yochai cursed all who called him the Son of God. And he says, if demoralization does not proceed from the leaders, it is not real demoralization. What he means is, this is an, basically what it's, it's coming out to, and I had to read other commentary on this commentary to figure out what was all was going on. That's the way that rabbinic literature works. The, the, it goes on, this Midrash goes on to say that in this time, in Noah's day, the leaders of nations were doing things, and the nobles of nations, not only the king, but the nobles, they were doing things like, oh, a young bride is all, she's ready to be wed, ready to, to, to walk down the aisle, so to speak. She's, right, she's, she's been perfumed, she's, you know, she's 
dressed in the most beautiful things, whatever. She's prepared for her husband. And at that moment, a noble would come and take her and have his way with her first. And this was beginning to be common practice. Not only would the nobility, the leaders, the nobles, the rulers, not only would they take young virgins just before the point of marriage, which, by the way, is incredibly demeaning. They would also take married women. They would take whoever they wanted. And it was a very, it was very much an over-sexualized period, time period in, in, in history. Rabbi Simeon Bar, uh, Bar Yochai goes on to say that also licenses of marriage were given for same sex as well as for bestiality. So you could actually have a certificate of marriage between you and your goat or your ox or your whatever. And so it, it was just this nobles were all also taking young men and all, all this, this kind of, and this is just not in the, this is not in, you know, this is all humanity. There's no Israel at this point. And so the, the text, when it says the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that's this inner, that's what Rabbi Yochai, his opinion is and his ruling is about what this means. It means that these rulers and these noble, noblemen were taking anyone they possibly could find. Um, and I think it's interesting that these men or these whatever become these men of renown and we call them giants. Now, were there giants, bigger people? We found bones. Archaeology has said, yes, you know, it, it has, whatever. So the question is, how do we get giants? We have giants pre-flood, right? We have the flood, which wipes out all of humanity, except for those that are saved. But then you get to the Torah, and Israel's coming into the wilderness, and all of a sudden, there's these giants again. And the scriptures tell us that they are the giants of before the flood. It, ma- it makes that connection for us. We don't even have to surmise that. So what's going on? So that, do what? <laughs> so that, yeah, <laughs> doggy paddle. So there are, some, there are some, some interesting solutions for this. That, by the way, let me just say this about the sexual morality and all this stuff. This happened, you know, historically, if we want to say, what, 5,000 years ago, right? Wait, like, my point is, we think it's bad right now. Like, oh my God, our world is, ball, is you know, because of pedophilia and incest and all, and all that stuff is bad. It's disgusting, yeah. But it's not like us. We're not the first generation to deal with sex trafficking. Sadly enough, the sad thing is that we still haven't solved it. Fifty. 5,000 years, 5,500 years ago, we have it recorded that this was a thing. Now, the Midrash on this was written somewhere between 3 and 500 A.D. So it's 3 to 500 A.D. They are commenting on things that happened all that time ago, and then we are reading their commentary, right? Anybody confused yet? No good. Okay, so my point is that this has always been a thing. So... Again, as I said in my comments on the abortion case, we need to take a chill pill and stop running around with our hair on fire. Oh my God, things are worse than they've ever been before. Have you read your Bible? Have you even looked at some of the stuff that went on and read some history about it, what people think was happening? Holy cow, I'm glad I live right now where we can arrest people that have been accused of stuff and either put them in jail or we can tag them and we can try or whatever. We have ways around this stuff, right? We can put them in cage like the animal they are or we can tag them and bag them like the animal they are, whatever. But this, this, is, what, this, is, what, it, it, this is what pushed God to go like, I, I'm, I'm done, we're starting over. This is the, the, his sacred space of earth was defiled by sexual immorality. And so he had to cleanse his, his sacred space and start over again. So there are many ways of talking about why there are giants after the flood and before of the same lineage, perhaps. Um, one of the oddest ones to me is this idea that when we do, when humanity does evil things, 
we, and this is what the sages say, I don't understand, we create demons. And those demons, the, the demonic type of, of spirit then creates bigger, larger than life adversity and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These things become giants. Anyway, so that way of explaining it is that the same spirit was there after the flood that was before. And this is Jewish writings, right? Sounds really charismatic. Um, another one is that uh, the, the, these giants, a couple of them, uh, Og of Bashan and... Anyway, uh, two of them, they hitched a ride on the ark. They like held on to the ark as it... That's, that's the story. And then they went and populated and, and all, all those things. Um, my favorite, but probably the l- least popular and the most offensive to traditional audiences is that maybe it wasn't a global flood. Okay. So, yeah, I know, shocker, right? Um, so this, so the, anyway, this idea that, what I, the point I wanted to get to from all of that is that when the spies come into the land and they see the giants that are there, whatever these giants were, I'm not so interested in about, you know, how tall they were. And I'm not so interested in that. I'm interested in where they come from. And the, 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 the largest, uh, or the, 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 if it's not demons and fallen angels, the other opinion and the other option that seems to be most popular and most attractive is that human rulers had gotten really, really bad. And, and Rabbi Yohai's opinion is that if, if demoralization happens in a society, if society starts to crumble... And it is just the fault of the people. In other words, if you have righteous leaders and the people are just bad, right? We just want destruction. That can be fixed. That's the whole conversation in this Midrash. However, if demoralization comes from the leadership, there's no hope for it. Except for the leadership to be removed and replaced. So, bless you. This is where I think this interacts so interestingly with current events. It always interacts with current events because it allows us then to look into our own world and go, okay, in America, for instance, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with a majority righteous population and unrighteous uh, leadership? Well, I think the majority of us would say yes. The problem is the people that follow that leadership would say absolutely not it's the other way around right so you always got people on each side of the view looking at it opposite from you the main idea here goes with something i've told you for years and years and years and that is if you read through tanakh hashem consistently consistently without exception as far as i can tell or with rare exception never castigates individual citizens of Israel, of humanity. He never calls out, like I said before, like he never calls out the old grandma that's, you know, like she might have a little idol on her mantle place and she's making challah for Shabbat. He never calls her out by name and goes, it's because of your grandmas, right? With their idols on their fireplaces. Like, no, what, who, does the, who do the prophets continually call out for their sin? The leadership. The other prophets, the kings, the the princes consistently is calling out the leadership. Why? Because as a leadership goes, so goes the nation. And what I think is most fascinating about this is that Yeshua does the same thing. How many times do we see Yeshua calling out somebody for their sin, an individual person for their sin? How many? Who is he calling out? The leadership, the rulers always. Paul then later says, not many of you should wish to be teachers, <laughs> right? Because I think Paul has an understanding that like, no, you're the guys that always get it first throughout the whole story from Genesis to now. You guys are the ones that always get it first, right? The, the ones that, 
that have the responsibility to teach and to lead are the ones that are always held most accountable. Now, does that mean there is, there is no accountability for the individual citizenry? Of course there's accountability. But the, the scripture seems to focus on rulers and leaders and kings and princes and teachers and prophets and those kinds of things. So this, the, the, the connection here is that you have these giants and who is being sent to spy out these giants? The rulers of the tribes. You see this kind of consistent line of thought or have I boggled it all up? Hopefully I haven't muddied it up too bad for you. So the Nephilim, uh, yeah, whatever. Um, what I wanted to get to today was the reason for this and the focus on leadership. So um, let's go back to Numbers chapter 13 and uh, verse 25. So it says, they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, and they went and came to Moshe and to Aaron and the entire assembly of the children of Israel of the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and brought that back the report to them and the entire assembly, and they showed them the fruit of the land. They reported to him and said, we arrived to the land which you sent us, and indeed it flows with milk and honey. By the way, goat milk and date honey. I was listening to a, a podcast um, a couple uh, Christian scholars last week, I don't remember what it was called, but something came up about uh, bees in the land of Israel. And one guy was like, well, what is the, it was like, well, you know, land of milk and honey. And I was like, not bee honey, date honey, okay? Milk and honey, okay. Um, and this is its fruit. But the people that dwells in the land is powerful, and the cities are fortified and very great, and we also saw there the offspring of the giant. Okay, that's what we're talking about. Amalek dwells in the area of the south. The Hittite, Jebusite, Amorite dwell on the mountain. And the Canaanite dwells by the sea on the bank of the Jordan. Caleb silenced the, peop- silenced the people toward Moshe and said, We all shall surely uh, ascend and conquer it, for we can surely do it. Of Caleb. Go, Caleb. But the men who had ascended with him said, We cannot ascend to that people, for it is too strong for us. They brought forth the children of Israel an evil report on the land. And they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have passed to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it were huge. All the people. Everybody. A whole land just full of big people. All the people we saw in it were huge. We saw the Nephilim, the sons of the giant, among the Nephilim. And here's, here's where I want to finish. Somebody read for me that last phrase. Okay, that reads really interestingly to me. Now, I'm not a grammaticist. I'm certainly not a Hebrew grammaticist or whatever. See, I can't even say the word. Um, but this, is, this reads really interestingly to me because we all face stuff in life. We all face giants. We all face challenges. We all face hard things, you know, valleys, mountains, all the imagery you want to use there is a difference in my mind to going that thing is huge that circumstance is really challenging i don't know if i'm capable that's a thought a lot of us have right i don't know how i'm going to face this because of its enormity or complexity right that's one thing If you read this too fast, you think that's what's going on in this story. They're looking at the giants. They're looking at the fortified cities. And they're going, we don't know if we can, if if we can come up with a solution that will get us there. But a closer reading shows us that that's not what is actually going on here. What do they say first? And we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes. Oh, so see, they start... Not with talking about the complexity of the land. They start with talking about themselves. Again, really challenging thing in front of you. Really challenging. And you go, that thing is super challenging. I've looked at it from every angle. I don't know that I'm equipped to to handle it. I don't know how I'm going to get through that. Right? You ever said that? Yep. Versus, I'm really small and really messed up. I'm not equipped to handle anything. So 
everything is big in my eyes. Does that make sense? In the first situation, you rock around life is pretty good. You handle most things. Something big pops up and you go, oh, that got my attention. In the second example, you live under a constant state of being overwhelmed. Not because things in life are big, but because the way you see yourself. And it's so striking that this is the way that, they, that the text records this thing. That we were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in theirs. Well, how do you know? How do you know you were? You only can say what other people see about you based on how you see yourself. This projection, is that what you said? Yes, thank you. That's the word I was looking for. This idea of projection. And when we, we talk, this, this all in my mind just folds in so well together. Because when we talk about our place in the world and what we're supposed to be doing and how we're supposed to be acting and, and, and how we should be being a light and sharing God's image and all that to this world. When we talk about all those things, a lot of what we have to figure in is, well, how are people going to receive us? How are people going to take us? How are people going to, going to, going to, you know, what's going to be the reaction? And in that, all we do is projection. We, all we do is we go, well, like, I'm not going to talk to them. Listen, I never made it in sales because I always defeated myself before I even talked to somebody. I'm like, oh, well, they're going to think I'm this. They're going to think I'm that. They were, so I just don't. Well, how do you know? You don't know. In, in, you know, teenagers deal with this in dating relationships, maybe adults, you know, whatever, if you're dating or whatever, this idea that like, well, I can't approach them, they're going to think I'm this. Well, I, that's projection. That's what you think about yourself. And how telling, listen, I don't think we should ever do, um, I don't ever think we should do psychiatric analysis on biblical characters. But we do it all the time, let's just be honest. We do it all the time. Why do they do this? What were they thinking? We try to figure them out and whatever. I don't think this requires a lot of analysis. I think it's in the, t- it's almost like the text is going like, no, look, look, like, really, do an analysis on this. Like, assume some things about this statement because it's so apparent. We were like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and so we were in theirs also. And I am an overthinker. You know that. I've confessed that multiple times. But I think that the, the body of Christ, the, Messiah, the body of Messiah, the kingdom, needs to do some serious introspection. And we need to think about how we think about ourselves. We need to think about how we see ourselves, how we look at ourselves. What do we think about ourselves? When I think, when I think about me, what are some of the words that come? Does anybody want to do this project real time? Somebody volunteer. When you think about you, what are some words that come to mind? Anybody brave enough to do it? No, no, at least you're honest. No, no, anybody brave enough to do it? No? All right, I'll do it. Okay. All right, what's something else? Something else you think about yourself? Okay, good, I love it. What'd you say? No. Uh, Okay. Yeah, okay. All right. Some, say something else. I heard something. Unliked. All right. Huh? What else? Do I, Robin? Awkward. You know what's weird about the word awkward? I can't ever figure out how to spell it. What an awkward little word. Uh, I'll add mine, or one of mine, because there, there's more than this board will hold. What else? Okay. So, what's that? Intro, okay. All right. So, I think, we, I, think I made my point, right? Now. All, all of these inadequacies, these challenges, these whatever, n- number one, I think this is good because I want you to see that everybody's got them, right? 
you may, you may have just in the last two minutes heard somebody say one of those things and go, I would have never thought that about them, right? So how telling is this that there's stuff that people struggle with you don't know? And again, we are supposed to be saved, healthy, redeemed, whole people. This is what it looks like. <laughs> Welcome to the kingdom. You see, and I'm not, this is not castigating anybody individually. This is a communal thing. This is a, this is the, the communal things that we deal with, right? Do you see why I'm not real evangelistic? Why do I want to bring somebody new into this when we don't even have ourselves figured out, right? And I know that might be cynical. Yeah, maybe so, whatever. The, the other thing, so I think this is a really good learning tool for some of us to go like, who said that about themselves, right? That's really interesting. But also, this, this is a real, real world. I know I didn't prepare anybody to answer a certain way, right? This is just, this is just what I think about myself. This is real. Now, if I ask you to think of, and I didn't ask you positive or negative. You notice that? I didn't say, everybody tell me something negative about yourself. I just said, when you think of yourself, what's some words that come to mind? Look what came out. Isn't this a great experiment? I literally just, I literally just came up with this. But how interesting is that? So when we read this verse and we go, that verse reads really odd. That's really weird. No, no, it isn't. All of us sitting here today, we could say this verse the exact same way. We try to make it sound like life's overwhelming. Life's not overwhelming, ladies and gentlemen. There are moments that might be overwhelming, but the, the reason why most of us stress about life so much is not because life is hard. You ask some, ask 10 people, hey, you run into them, hey, how you doing? What are they going to say? Oh, busy, usually with a sigh, like everything is just overwhelming. Life is no harder today than it was for our grandparents, great-grandparents that had to do stuff like, I don't know, plow a field with a mule or dig a well by hand or fight in a world war or, you know, nothing or, or, or live through slavery or whatever your, your background is. Life is no harder for us today. The difference is we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes, period, full stop. That's the problem. The problem is, is with how we think about us. Because this is what we think about us. Now, if I asked you to give me some positives about you, it would take a lot longer to list this many. I just know this because I understand people. It would take a lot longer to put this, this many words. And there's a good chance that you would be apprehensive to say good things about yourself because the church has taught you this toxic idea that if you think you do anything well, then you're full of pride. So we hold back and we go, oh, well, there's, no, there's nothing good in me. Who taught you that? The Bible didn't teach you that. I'm sorry that men's interpretation of the Bible, twisted and toxic, taught you that. But the Bible didn't teach you that. The Bible says that God created you in his image in his likeness, there's nothing good in me. We, we, why are we apprehensive to go like, I do this really well. I hope God doesn't strike me because of pride. Or I hope I don't get called out by one of my, my church friends because I'm being arrogant. Which is not real humility in the first place. Thank you. Which is not real humility in the first place. It's this false humility that is hoping to manipulate something from God because we really don't want to say what we feel. Right, right, because ultimate salvation, thank you, Brady, comes from being an utterly wretched person. <laughs> and what I'm, and understand what I'm not trying to do is I'm not trying to push some like neo-humanistic, you know, people are really all good. Because there's some real crap out there, right? There's some really bad, crappy people out there. And in our, if, and would it not be for the constraints of the Spirit of God and His Word, a lot of us would be really crappy people too. I'm not saying that, we, you know, humans is inherently all good. 
However, humanity is not inherently wretched like we've been taught. That God just hates the very sight of us. And, and I talked about this on my radio show, and I can't help but think this is where this comes from for me personally. And I have to believe for some of you because you come from similar places. The formula is this. God hates sin, right? Can we all agree on that? God hates sin, yes, okay? Just God hates sin, okay? All right? I'm a human being. Humans are born, what? In sin, right? Thank King David for that little psalm, right? In iniquity, right? I'm born in sin. Therefore, I am sin. This is kind of like A plus B equals or whatever that, if A equals, you know what I'm talking about. So then what are we to conclude from these statements? Hey, see, I'm not alone. Now, is this true? No, absolutely not true. I'm not saying this is the way we should think. I'm saying a lot of the churches we came from taught this. Maybe not, they didn't write it out on a whiteboard like this, but every, the verses we picked as our scripture verses, the, the Romans road and the way we put scripture together to tell the story of salvation and of God is this. And so you need a savior and this, this savior overcomes sin and death and all the stuff and then God loves you only because of that. So the rest of this, if we have more time, is that, so... So I need Jesus, right? Yeah, okay. Then, then you have Jesus, you have Yeshua, but then when God looks at you, who does he see? Ah, he sees Yeshua, not me, which tells me that really I'm still in this camp. And I have never really crossed over into the like, no, like I'm worthy of God's love. I'm, I've been restored to God's creation. And, and his image is alive in me, and right? Now, I know, again, like I say this all the time, some of you are not going to get this. You're not going to understand it. You go, what's the big deal about? Why are you being, you know, why are you being so emotional about it all and, and so sensitive and all that? But what, what, those of you that don't get this, thankfully you've never been taught this or you don't feel this way or see this way, but what you don't see is I'm looking out at people and everybody's doing this. That was, that's what some of you don't see. I see where this is landing when I talk about it. I know this is a thing. And you know what's really sad to say? How many of us would have been, would have been better off in our mental and emotional state if maybe we had never gone through the church? Yikes. See, I didn't mess up on abortion. I'm saving it for this. <laughs> Thank God for the church. And, and, and if it wouldn't have been for the church and my mom, you know, I said I had a drug problem. Mom drug me to church every, if I, if I wouldn't have been through the church, I likely would not be here right now. Baruch Hashem, he used that as a vehicle to get me here. However, I've got like dump truck loads of baggage as well. So is this the cost of salvation? I sure hope not. Because it's a lot to bear. And how many of us, how many of you, those of you that struggle with, you know, with self-image and what, how many of you? Everybody struggles with self-image and all that kind of stuff. A question for you to ponder is how much of this comes from doctrine versus how many it just comes from people maybe that have hurt you, you know, family stuff, versus how many it comes from just life experience Life experience, people, we kind of, that, sadly, that's kind of, we expect that. People are going to do you wrong. Life is going to be hard. You're going to have dings and bruises and bumps and, and scars from those things. We expect that. But the church, preachers, teachers, rabbis, I'm not, this is not just a Christian thing. This is a religious thing. That's the last place we should expect to be mangled and garbled and, and, and 
taught to look, that taught, taught to think of ourselves as grasshoppers. The ultimate effectiveness that we have in the world, I believe, comes when we can look at ourselves not as grasshoppers anymore, but as capable creatures created by a perfect, divine, loving God who loved us so much that he actually put his fingerprint on us when he fashioned us and formed us and that made us in his image, in his likeness. That means that the, 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 the characteristics and the personality that I have when I'm, my, when I'm at most me, they come from God. And they are, they are in there for a purpose. And they are there for a reason. And, and then he thought it right to put his spirit, his personality, his, his essence in me. That, that, I, that all of this stuff, that all of this stuff, wherever it comes from, it's not God. It's just not. It's just not. Now, could I be a little more extroverted? Maybe. But you know what? If that's who I am, that's who I am. And there's strength in that. Could I, could I, could I be a little better at learning? Maybe. Could I, could I be a little less obnoxious? Was a good chance that really you're not as introverted as you think. You're probably not as bad at learning as you think. You're probably not as obnoxious as you think or annoying or unliked or whatever that the, the fact is that most of these things, most of these things are not even true, even though you feel they're your reality. The, 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 the wrap up is this. There is, there is ground that the kingdom needs to take. Of course, I'm not advocating like a religious war. We go attack another country. I mean, there is ground in people's lives that the light that we have needs to overcome. There's darkness in places that the life we have needs to overcome. There is a thing promised called the kingdom. Yeshua said, it's here now. It's in you. It's near you. Let's call that the land for just for connection purposes. Have we been spying out the land, the kingdom, for the last several hundred years? Going like, I don't know. I don't know. There's giants. I don't know. I don't know. When really it's not about the giants or the fortified cities or any of that. It's really that we look like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And so, so we did in theirs. And we don't even know. We don't even know if it's true. Now, the last thing I want is to be around a bunch of big-headed, arrogant people. We've all been around those people. But what I also know is that many of us have lived in this for so long, there's no way you can become arrogant. Actually, living in this is arrogance. You know that insecurity is actually arrogance? It hurt my feelings so bad several years ago when I learned this. I always thought pride is like, yeah, I'm this, I'm that, get out of the way. I, you know, that's pride. Until I learned that pride, however you, you, you do it, is really self-defense. That's what, it's self-preservation. That's what pride is. And I would never be, I never have been that person that walks into a room like, hey, I'm here. You got, everybody can be okay now. I got it. I've never been that person. What I have been is I'll be over here in the corner I hope nobody sees me or asks me to do anything. That's who I've always been. And still have very much that propensity. We all are all eating and you don't see me. I'm out on the porch, whatever, because I, I can't, it, ugh, ah, right? Anxiety, all, that's really me. The, but that's, that's arrogance too. That's pride too. That's protection. That's protection. That insecurity is really arrogance. Going like, I can't, what if I mess up? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I say something stupid? What if I, what if I got a, I don't know, what if I got a bat in the cave? What if I got like, I don't know, it, what if my outfit doesn't look right? What if my hair's not? It's insecurity. It's arrogance trying to protect myself. That's all it is. It's the same as that braggadocious outward stuff. Just, it's just the opposite end of it. Just the other side of it. So I want us to spend, I would like to invite you this week 
to spend some time thinking about how you think about yourself. Because for these people, because of what's at stake, that's the reason. What's at stake? For these people, it costs them entrance into the land and 40 years wandering around. And I just want to ask you this. Are you living the things that God has called you to do? How much longer are you going to wander? How much longer are you going to wander? Not because of disobedience. Not because, I don't think this story of the spies has as much to do with disobedience as we've talked about. As much as it does, they saw themselves as a way and it reinforced in the people then the way they saw themselves. A preacher who sees himself as eternally wretched will lead a church that sees themselves as eternally wretched. That's the way it works. It worked before the flood. It's working the same way after the flood, and it has for all of human history. I don't want to be a pastor of a bunch of, you know, braggers and, you know, jerks, and, but that's not, that's not what we're talking about. We've been told for so long that you can't even think one good thing about yourself because God will smite you because of pride. That's the stuff I want to dig out because that's not true. That's toxic. The fact is, when we start to realize, you know, Jennifer, I am a good teacher. Mark, I am a good mechanic. Uncle Billy, one of the best body men in the state, probably in the nation. When we start to, you know, in, the, in, in our regular way of thinking, we go like, oh, well, no, you know, I just... No, you know, not, not, instead of going like, yeah, I've worked hard to get here and God has blessed me. Man, what a difference. What a difference that is. I'm tired of, I'm tired of giving compliments and either people going, oh, no, 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 no. Or me feeling like I have to go, no, 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 no. Like, hey, you're a good teacher. Good. Cause I worked my butt off. I study my butt off. I hope I'm a good teacher. Hey, you're a good singer. Good. Because I've, I've worked hard to get there and God has blessed me. You see the difference? One is really false and shallow. And one is like, man, they know who they are. Holy cow. I want to be like that. We're not grasshoppers. Are we all perfect? Now, but we know that innately. We just want to be able to attain and capture the thing that God 